amigos, amigas, players, playwrights, dude, dudettes, everybody in between. This is, we're doing something different this time. We have been constantly reinventing ourselves. I surprised this with Murph last week in typical fashion. Uh, he's getting so old, he forgot what I did to him last week, so I have to do it to him again this week. So we're not going to do a separate intro outro anymore. We're bringing on the guests. So we're going to bring on a guest this time. And his name is Tim. And Tim did a case one time that there was a lot of people arrested. And there was a lot of dope seized. Like, I think 90, what, 600 kilos, something like that. $185 million worth of cocaine. But Tim is with us. But Tim, before we get started, I have to ask you, as being our new special guest, guest of honor, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes? Bring it on. Let's play, Victor. Hey. Uh, Morgan and, and uh, Steve, ready to go. You know what we say, everybody. It's time to get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. We're going to hear all about Tim's adventures today. All righty, people. So, hey, we're going to do this a little differently. We're bringing in up front Tim Stommel. Did I say that correctly, Tim? Yeah, you did. Yep, Tim Stommel. Tim Stommel. All right, Tim Stommel, former law enforcement. Before we get into your story, Tim, we're going to bring you through this little thing of ours we call our intro because the um, uh, the script says I have to do certain things. So... Let me do this certain thing, which is talk about what we're going to do. Hey, you guys know that we've got this thing called uh, uh, Spotify and Apple. They give us those five-star ratings. So I want you guys to go over this five stars. Just take a look at those things and say, hey, I really like you guys. You know, click on the thing. Say, uh, we really like you. Put us in some comments. So Spotify and Apple, hit those five stars. The other thing we want you to do is head on over to our website, Game of Crimes Podcast at uh, gameofcrimespodcast.com, not at something. I'm getting to that. So gameofcrimespodcast.com. Just head on over there. We're going to have some of the videos that Tim has shared with us for today. We're going to put that on there. And we're also going to, we've got a new merch list out there. We've got our mailing list. We've got our book list. Our book list is growing all the time. So that's starting to grow. Also, follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But now, Tim, I'm going to ask you, where do you got to be? But you don't know the answer to that yet. Only Murph knows this. So, Murph, if I ask you, where do you got to be? Where do you got to be? Where do you got to be? What would you tell Tim? Tim, you got to tell everybody to come on over and join us on Patreon for Game of Crimes. There's content on there you're not going to hear on the regular podcast. As everybody knows, the podcast is free. Uh, we do charge a, a few pennies for uh, Patreon, but you're going to hear things that you're not going to hear anywhere else. We've got content in there that has to do with uh, case reviews, with movie reviews, law enforcement movies. We've got a section on 911, what's your emergency, or like I say, like to say, 199, what's your emergency. Uh, we've got a section called You Can't Make This Shit Up. We do a Q&A with some of our people where you can ask anything in the world. We'll answer your questions. We haven't turned down a single question yet. So come over and check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. One more time, that's Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Hey, and the other thing too, if you just want to give us a quick shout out, just head on over to PayPal.com and use our email, Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier to part with your hard-earned money that we so appreciate that you do with us. Now, a quick disclaimer, and Tim, this may come as a shock to you. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, Murph, but what do we tell Tim? We never take ourselves serious. We're going to have some fun today. 
And one of the ways we have fun is guess what time it is, Murph? Guess what time it is? I ask you, guess what time it is? I think it's time for Small Town, Town Police Blotter. Yay, the crowd goes wild because Tim Stommel is on here with us, our right. first guinea pig. So, hey, this actually comes to, from us from one of our people. This is going to shock you both. So Nick Howard sent me this story, but it's the ending. That's really cool, though. It's not cool what happened, but officers in Tucson, Arizona, not quite a small town here, but the story was so funny, I just had to include it. They're looking into a fire which broke out at Banner University Medical Center, uh, you know, in North Campbell Avenue. The Tucson Police Department told KGUN, there's a name for a, 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 a television station in a high crime area, K-Gun, K-G-U-N. Yes. I wonder if they're right wing or left wing. I don't know. <laughs> so. Apparently, the fire started. Apparently, flames came from a patient's room and threatened the hospital. Officers nearby confirmed rooms were evacuated. No one was hurt. Investigators are currently trying to figure out what caused the fire. The Tucson Fire Department has also joined the investigation. But Steve, Nick has been one of our longtime listeners. He, he told me we actually had a resource, an asset, as they say, on the ground. You know what it was? What? patient lit up a smoke while on oxygen and the reason he knows it is because nick works there oh my gosh oh you know what don't do meth and don't light a cigarette around our oxygen tank around oxygen <laughs> i didn't even have to tell tim this tim already knew this he's sitting there smiling correct believe it well, or not this guy so good you'd see at the gas pump that's exactly <laughs> what i was gonna say that's it <laughs> And the guy at the gas pump will live at the hospital and then he'll light up a smoke on oxygen. And if he didn't do it to himself the first time, he'll finish it the second time. But Murph, you're gonna like this next one. This next one comes to us from West Virginia. Oh, good. From Fayette County Sheriff's Department. I know I know that place well. Oak Hill, West Virginia, population 8,179. Salute. Well, guess what? Two women from Oak Hill, Murph, were arrested last week after police looked into a complaint of joyriding. Now, you might think, well, who cares, right? Hey, well, what were they joyriding on? Or well, it was a car. It was a car. No, don't don't go there yet. We're not there yet. Okay. So they were busted for the joyriding offense with the other woman. Uh, her name was Lavender. Getting off too easy. So while investigating the joyriding, the deputies noticed a sign on the home's front door. You would have liked this too, both of you guys doing dope deals. You, you're going to love this. A sign that led deputies to conclude that drugs were most likely being sold from this resident. Of course, the discovery really didn't require Sherlock Holmes-level detective skills. The bright pink sign taped to the front door, get this, red. Due to snitches, everyone, due to snitches, everyone entering my home is subject to being searched. All cell phones and drinks will be left outside. If you're not a snitch, it won't offend you if I search you. Now, <laughs> Steve, you're going to be shocked what they found in the home. I guess methamphetamine. They found meth. They found meth. What rule number one on this show, kids? Don't, Don't do meth. Do meth. Uh, how would you guys have liked to have that sign when you're getting ready to knock on a door? No snitches allowed. You know what? Uh, we need to export them out of our state of West Virginia because they're dragging us down. <laughs> well, hey, and you know what? We are a global podcast. We have listeners from everywhere, from Australia to New Zealand to Spain yeah. and Germany. I saw we were hitting the charts in, in Nigeria and Guyana. Yeah, that's because the scammers are trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Maybe they got some funny. <laughs> all those, all those rich princes. Guess where they're from? They're from Nigeria. There you go. All right. Hey, well, Steve, this comes to us from Austria and Tim, Austria, not Australia, Austria. An Austrian man just got, and he got three years for doing this. For the vicious crime, he gave somebody the wrong tattoo. Now, you're going to ask what the tattoo was. <laughs> Let me tell you what the tattoo was supposed to be. 
A 21-year-old woman strolled into the tattoo shop with hopes of getting one of those yin and yang symbols, you know. Uh -huh. the, you guys have seen those. They look like the little, you know, mm -hmm. little teardrops, you know, going back and forth, right? So, so she definitely, she said it, hey, this is, I described exactly what I'm looking for. The tattoo artist drafted up a preview, showed it to her, said, this is what you're supposed to be getting. Sounds simple, right? Yep. She got home, took a peek under her bandage. Then she realized he gave her something she didn't ask for. Uh -oh. Guess what she got? <laughs> no what, she got what she got was a penis permanently drawn on her body along with a popular word that begins with an F. <laughs> and how much time did he get? He got three years. Wow. And guess what? He will also be reportedly placed in a center for mentally abnormal offenders. And when asked, why did you do it? His response was, just because. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Hey, it's and in Australia, man. No, Austria. I mean, Aust oh, jeez. <laughs> I, I said it. I said not Australia. I know. Well, you, said, you said Austria to start with, and I thought, well, that's one of those avatar things. you know. Austria. It is a country. Oh, Austria man. is a country. Okay. Like 911 is a number you call, not 119. One <laughs> so you can't even figure out what the wrong number is you're supposed to not call. All right. Well, thus endeth the reading for today. P.A.S.U. Domine, Domine, Requiem. So that is it. So, uh, and by the way, too, guys, uh, before we get into the main show, just make sure, too, that, you know, hey, remember, we got this fan club out there that Tim is going to join as soon as, in fact, we should make him join while he's on the air right now, Murph. So all you have to do is go to Facebook, type in Game of Crimes fans. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, she will deem whether or not you are worthy of entrance into our club. Just answer a couple questions. All you got to do is get close. That's it. You don't even have to be right. Just get close and join the fun, right, Murph? It's fun in that group, isn't it? It is, but uh, you know, Tim's Tim started. He's looking a little worried now because he didn't know he had to take a test. He thought this was just going to be fun <laughs> talking today. Yeah. But it is. It's uh, we've got some great people in there. They 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 like to cut up. They put some funny stories in there that are. <laughs> but they, you know what? They also have a heart. So like when Hurricane Ian was coming through Florida here a couple of weeks ago, I was getting comments from a lot of the folks in our fan club worried about Murph. So love you guys to death. Thank you very much for, for supporting us. Yeah, Murph, you traitorous bastard. If you'd never moved down there, nobody would have had to worry about you. But you left me. You left me uh, hanging in Northern Virginia. I'm, I'm half and half right now. I'm in Atlanta for the weekend. So we're visiting a couple of our kids here and grandchildren and having a good time. And I've got my little makeshift studio sitting here with a bed, a box up on a bed and trying to balance everything on my knees. Was this the was this the Atlanta? Was this the kids that were supposed to stay in Florida? One of the reasons you moved down there and bought the house and built the pool? Yes, it is. And you know what's going to happen is I'm wiring some lights for them and fans. And, and one of these days they're going to turn it on and the house might catch on fire. So payback. Then they're going to have no. to move back to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, you know, it's cool because their daughter is actually going to the same elementary school that their mother, our youngest daughter, went to when she was a little girl. So it's kind of cool. Kind of cool. Well, you know what else is cool, Murph? Well, right, I got you right in the middle of a drink. You know, yes, what else is cool is we got Tim Stommel on here. We have subjected Tim to torture. We're going to find out later if this is a good idea or not to bring our guests on this early and subject him to this torture. What do you think so far? Well, he's starting to yawn. I'm not sure what he thinks. Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of shock culture, but I can see where it's going. So, well, you know hey, what? I, I've known I've ahead. known Tim for a long, long time. Uh, brother DE agent. Uh, left a, a outstanding reputation with the agency when he moved on, pulled the pin. And, um, 
here's another hero that we're bringing on the series today that you guys are going to hear some of the stuff he did. You're not going to believe some of the things that he did. So let's don't waste any more time, Tim. We're going to get right into this. Yeah. So as we do with everybody, Tim, in this thing we call Cosa Nostra, thing of ours, how the hell did you get started in this thing we call law enforcement? I mean, drunk one night, just what? Don't tell me you were watching Miami Vice and you wanted to be Sonny Crockett. Whatever you do, do not tell me that. Actually, I think back at that back in that time, cops was just coming out, so everybody had to watch cops. Broward County oh, kicking down doors, chasing bad guys. It was some pretty cool yeah, stuff. Baby. But and you know the worst thing about cops, I loved the show, but the bad part was a lot of cops picked up bad habits from the guys on cops because when they got on camera, all of a sudden they forgot things like the Fourth Amendment and search and seizure. They just start reaching into people's pockets and pulling stuff out, and I'm going, "What are you doing?" You say that you like know, that, that was the only cameras on the streets back in those days. So, <laughs> yeah, there were no phone cameras. That was for sure. But no, there were not. So, so you, I, I remember when cops came out too, started watching it. So, what you know? Did you have any family in law enforcement or military or anything? And where were you growing up as a youth? Where where was Tim Stommel located? Yeah, actually, I, I grew up in a small farming town in Wisconsin, five thousand people, biggest town in the county. So. You know, we didn't Salute. see too much action. Yes, sir. Yeah, buddy. I think my county had like one murder in 30 years, so it was it was pretty low key. But my dad grew up public service. I mean, he was a factory worker, but he spent his whole life running the ambulance service, fire department, and involved with a lot of public service. And going through high school, I always had that niche, law enforcement. I thought it'd be exciting and applied to state patrol coming out of high school, didn't get in, went to college. I think I got a scholarship for engineering. Didn't like that so much. Went to radio and television broadcasting. That didn't work out. And finally did criminal justice and married a woman that was going to be a doctor. And I thought, all right, my future's set. Let me uh, support her through medical school and go into law enforcement. And I actually dropped out of college and uh, started applying to, I think it was university police, state police. I was like, you know, places that ain't too dangerous, right? Take it easy. And uh, didn't get hired anywhere. So uh, took the exam for the Milwaukee Police Department with about five other people. and. Got on the waiting list for, for um, I think it was number 74 on the waiting list, and got picked up and got in the Milwaukee Police Department and found myself District 5, inner city district, 200 murders my first year. Felt like it was Vietnam, but it was a very good experience, eye-opening experience, I'll tell you that. Boy, that's, I mean, you talk about dropping into a bucket of crap. Holy cow, 200 murders. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you go was, from a county with one murder to now 200 murders. I mean, you got to be sitting there at some point and go, what the hell have I just done? Yeah, it was, it was, it was an eye-opener. I mean, I, that was 200 to die. That's not the 600 gunshots. People got shot that didn't die. So pretty much my district, another district, that's all we did. It was all night long, responding to shots fired, shooting, shooting. And I, I was in a two-man car. I'd usually jump in with the shooting victim, ride him right to the, right to the hospital, go in the ER, watch him put in the chest tubes, get, grab the bloody clothes bring it down to the headquarters, hang it up to dry before it could be packaged. And yeah, it was, it was definitely rock and roll. It was a uh, quite an experience. Did you ever get any dying declarations? <laughs> no, it's just a lot of gurgling. <laughs> All right, Tim. <laughs> now now that's, that's spoken for, that's how you can tell the man knows he's been there and done that when that's the way he describes it. Let me tell you one of the things I learned from watching cops too. You watched the other one, Philly, they, they did some episodes with Philly. And that's what those guys were doing, just going call to call. They just called it scoop and swoop. I mean, they had these little, they would carry the little things up there, just throw them onto there and just run them out. It's like there was no crime scene preservation. There was no, I mean, whole lot of stuff. It was like with that many number of people being shot, 
their whole goal is just get them onto a stretch or one of those little canvas things. They'd roll them up, you know, unroll it, throw them onto there and carry them down the stairways. And man, so wh- what year was that, Tim, when you first started? That was back in 1990 to 93. I did that for three years. And then, uh, uh, of course, my doctor wife left me. So I ended up down in Florida. We always usually end up following women. So I met, went down to Florida and got a job down in Coral Springs, Florida as a cop. Uh, it's in Broward County, northern northern corner of Broward County. But now I was in a, I was in an agency. I think we probably had, I went from 2,000 cops to a, probably 120 cops. It was a middle upper income community. Yeah, I went from, you know, all the major gangs to now 10 high school kids on the corner was considered a gang. So <laughs> it was a bit of a culture shock. It was a change. Coral so, Springs was a nice place. A lot of agents. Oh, very beautiful. Here. Yeah, yeah. And you would have thought it would have been the other way around. A lot of people would thought Florida might be a little bit more rough than Wisconsin because I mean it's cold up there. I mean what do people? I mean they run around and put cheese on their head and go to <laughs> Packers games, right? Yeah, but then when the yeah when the summertime it does the opposite. So yeah, the problem with Milwaukee is like an hour and a half from Chicago, so they got a lot of the Chicago gangs. I think they usually wow. rank in the top ten per capita for violence for mid-sized cities, but yeah, wow. it's pretty. It's more like most of your mid-sized, you know, Baltimore, St. Louis, a lot of your mid-sized cities. What kind of gangs so, were you getting? Uh, we had them mostly, it was Bloods, Crips, Black Gangster Disciples, Brothers of the Struggle. Um, those are probably the more four major ones. It's not like I saw on the East Coast, right, where you get these, like, we're the Fifth Street Boys, and they make up these names. These were pretty much organized gangs out of Chicago and, and L.A. as their roots. But What is the first, so when you when you got into uh, up there in Milwaukee, we don't want to... Mm-hmm we don't want to gloss over this because sometimes there's gold in them, our Hills, as we found out with some of our other guests. So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> You'll remember this too, Murph. Remember who we were talking to and he tried to gloss over his time down at Houston until we find out that a guy on PCP stripped naked and tried to dive through his window and attack him. Wasn't that guy Hargraves? Yeah. Oh, it was, it was in Dallas, I believe. In Dallas. Yeah. Dallas. <laughs> yeah. So you got a story like that. Anybody stripped down? Anybody stripped down on meth and, you know, PCP and climb into your car? What's like a weird thing that happened to you? I mean, what happens in Milwaukee? I tell you, but my worst experience probably in Milwaukee and it actually got me an investigation. Probably my only investigation my whole career was uh, overtime stop at about 1.30. We pulled over this this, this uh, old Cadillac and there was three guys in it and one of them was dodging down. So we got him out and there was a loaded gun under the seat. And, of course, we called the paddy wagon. And in Wisconsin, a loaded gun in a car is a felony. So we put the uh, juvenile in our car and the two adults in the paddy wagon and we're searching the car and in the back pocket of the Lincoln I find a Pringles can with duct tape and a fuse sticking out of it and of course being a young cop I shake it and I was like yeah it rattles okay this is good <laughs> so I was like well you know what let's, let's, put, let's put it in our car and drive downtown and book these guys in so I park under the police headquarters and I'm like you know what before we bring the prisoner up maybe we should put this thing in the trunk just in case so I throw it in the trunk and we go upstairs to the booking sergeant. We're like, yeah, we got two adults and a juvenile in custody for a weapon and a possible explosive device. And he's like, well, where's the explosive device? And now my head's starting to spin. I'm like, uh, in the car? He's like, well, where's the car? Parked under the uh, police headquarters building. <laughs> so, yeah, it didn't go over too well. They called in a bomb squad. They took it out. It had a quarter pound of military TNT inside of it with shrapnel and yeah, oh, was, yeah, I basically was brought up on internal charges of endangering the lives of officers and so on and so on. Saw the chief, I got a slap on the hand with my union rep and said, yeah, it wasn't real smart. You young will forgive you. And, well, but, at least you didn't say it's dark down here. Maybe we should light this little candle we got here and see if we can <laughs> see something. 
Oh my! I can't believe they brought you up on charges like that. You're a young officer. Yeah. You know, it's a, I mean, it's not intentional. It was an honest mistake. Although, I mean, it's a dangerous one, but geez, <laughs> dangerous on, mistake, but honest one. Well, I've heard other guys doing the same thing in Florida. My old department, I heard where the guy put a pipe bomb in an evidence locker too. So I'm not the only one that has done yeah. that. So. <laughs> so did they ever figure out whether or not it was actually operational? Had it been lit, would it have worked? It, it was actually when I was a cop in Florida. I got subpoenaed to go back and testify in federal court with the ATF because they traced the stolen explosives back to the military and the guy that stole it. So I actually ended up testifying in a federal case on it, believe it or not. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Nice. Wow. <laughs> Well, either that or we might have been calling you Lefty on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or we might call him R.I.P. <laughs> Took out the whole police department there. Shake a lake, a lake, a boom. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I can't believe you shook the thing, though. It's like, <laughs> what is this thing? It's got a fuse on it, and it, yeah, it looks like a bomb. Okay, shake, shake, shake. we got to come up with a nickname now for Tim. I'm trying to think here. We'll call <laughs> oh. Shake and bake Tim or... Uh... Dynamite yeah. Tim or Dynamite Jimmy Dave's Jimmy Walker Dynamite. So, all right. Well, that that was interesting. That could have been a very short career for you. Unfortunately, it was not. Uh, it was not unstable. Um, to, you know where it would have gone <laughs> off. It still would have required a fuse. But yeah. So, but they stole. You said it had what dynamite in there? Quarter stick. Uh, uh, I forget what what it was now. Or like, Some was it C4 of, or something else? I have no idea. Yeah, I have no idea. I think it was like a C4 type explosive, but yeah. You never well, know. They, they were actually, they, they obviously wanted to do some damage with that thing and throw it at somebody. Yeah, that wouldn't have been surprising. Again, there I was working, it wouldn't have been surprising, so. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. Man. I was also working up there, just this got interesting, uh, during Jeffrey Dahmer. So that happened while I was up there too. And in fact, one of the officers that was involved, I just in my current job, I was just at a conference out in San Diego and and he was there representing a company and I didn't recognize the guy. I'm in a meeting sitting across the table from this guy representing one of the major resort companies and I'm representing Magnet Forensic, my company now. And we started talking I'm like, man, this guy looks familiar. And about halfway through, he's telling about his history. He's like, yeah, I was a Milwaukee police officer for 25 years. I'm like, what? So I, I passed him a picture of me in my Milwaukee uniform on my phone, and we started talking. He's like, what class were you in? He's like, 190. I'm like, well, so was I. He was my classmate okay. in the Milwaukee Police Academy and the officer that was there at the Jeffrey Dahmer that helped escort Jeffrey back in, or the, uh, the victim back into the apartment that got cut up that night. But, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Small world. Yeah. How, and uh, when you went through the academy, how many people were you in a were in your class? Uh maybe 50. Yeah. Wow. So you weren't doing meth or something. You didn't remember one of your own classmates? Come on, Tim. No, what's going <laughs> well, on? Well, he changed his last name actually, so that didn't help. <laughs> All right. He so changed that's... his last name because of the Dahmer case? No, no, he claims it was family related, so <laughs> I was going to say there's got to be a good story behind that one. <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, he's the only he's the only officer that kept his job. The other two got fired, which created a big havoc with the department at the time because they they were working the worst, busiest district in the city, and they got called to a drunk teenager in the street. And an adult male comes out, says, "We were drinking. I'm responsible. I'm his lover. I'll take him back in." They actually walk back in the apartment. They identify Jeffrey Dahmer and leave leave the kid in his custody, not knowing that he was actually cutting people up and. You know, there's probably a couple heads in the fridge, and you know, obviously oh. they didn't know that at the time. But so the two got fired. He kept his job because he was just out of the academy, and and he was like third on the call. So, 
So were you were you at that call at all or just? No, no, no. Yeah, I was working in the neighboring district, but yeah, no, I wasn't at that call. So when that when that when that when it when the story obviously you know when once they found out what Jeffrey was up to, were you still on the d- department at that time? When oh they yeah. Made, when they oh yeah. In? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't long after that. Yeah. See, and you were going to gloss over a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't do that here, man. We're, we are trained criminal investigators and interviewers. You know, I got to be honest with you. When I think of Milwaukee, I don't think of of the crime rate like that. I, I guess just because I didn't I'm even Southern think boy. of Dahmer. I mean, it's I know yeah. that that's on Netflix right now or whatever. Have you watched any of that? I have not. No. Do you have any I, desire to? It'd be kind of cool to see. I mean, I knew the story what it was back then, but it's always neat to see stuff you probably didn't weren't aware of. So. It'd be cool. I, well, you know, when I think of Milwaukee, I think of a nice city, and I think of old Milwaukee beer. Uh, usually yeah. it's Bratwurst, Harley, a... and uh, beer, right? There you Home go. Of Harley Davidson, too. Yeah, you think <laughs> yeah. about that, man. Nice. Um, so what What was the, what happened after that? I mean, uh, how much longer, how long into your, you were three years there, right? Yeah, three years, and then in Florida for four years as a Coral Springs cop. Yeah. But during your time in Milwaukee, during that three years, how long into your tour at Milwaukee did the Dahmer case happen? Uh, it was it was pretty quick. It was like probably ten months out of the academy. So, wow! And then you must—I mean, there must have been an explosion of news, you know, and people and all sorts of stuff going on around the department and you know at the scene and everything once it started unfolding. Yeah, it really—I think it took a toll on morale with the police department, just because, again, they made these cops the, the victim, or you know, like, you know, they made them look like the criminals. One, you know, the area they were working, they like I said, they were going to shootings every night shooting after shooting and and to you know bring a adult or a teenager back to an adult that was drunk well they thought was drunk they didn't know he was drugged up but um yeah they were kind of the fall goats for that so mm. but it, but but the other thing you said the teenager was he was he over 18 though or was he under 18 no he was he was 13 but he looked like he could have been between 16 to 18 okay i mean yeah but mm. You know, but again, it's one of those things. The thing is, they needed they they needed a sacrificial. They needed to sacrifice somebody for this, right? So, yep. um, so here's the question. Let me ask you this. Just, I mean, I, it's hard to go back in time and think, but what else could have been done other than maybe take the kid into custody for being a juvenile under the influence or something? But like you say, I can do that, or I can go prevent a shooting from happening, or get somebody to the hospital that's just been shot that needs to survive. I mean, if it's that. It's kind of you got to kind of balance those things, right? I hate to say it's relative, but it's kind of relative. It's like, yeah, I got a 13 year old or 16 year old, whoever looks like that. Yeah, maybe he's been drinking a little bit, but I can get him off the street. And we just had more shots fired down here. I, I mean, how would you have known at that point? Well, that's exactly right. If that would have happened in my next police department down in Florida, which was a, you know, obviously the police have more time than not going to those type of violent calls every night. It might have been handled differently, but. You know, what were they supposed to do, right? Try and identify where his parents were and call his parents. I mean, here you got an adult saying he's responsible for the kids. So, you know, just and the circumstances, kid wasn't right? It. The kid wasn't yeah. disputing what he was saying, right? No, no, not at all. But, yeah, unfortunate circumstance, that's for sure. And like I said, that kid, I think that night he got, you know, cut up by Jeffrey. And You know, so when you think about it, had you ever had any interaction, any interactions with him in that district or in that area? Did you ever run into him, Dahmer? No, no. I mean, it's a city of eight hundred thousand people, big city, urban city. So, and I was in the neighboring district, but no, no. Oh, okay, all. all right. Wow, man. So when you, so you must have followed that case at least for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, and especially when he got murdered in prison. So, yeah. 
I that guess, was kind uh, of poetic justice, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I don't want to say it, but exactly. <laughs> oh, we can say it. I mean, we're. I don't work for anybody anymore. <laughs> you work for me. You work for me, dog. <laughs> God. Hey, how um, long were you? How long did you stay in Milwaukee before you went down to Florida? Three years. Yeah, it was short. Yeah, I just did three years there. That was enough. Though, great learning experience. Yeah, the, the one thing you really learn, I think, and then police in general, but you really learn how to. Talk to people and really read people, right? I mean, you know when they're lying to you. Everybody would lie. In my district, you know, you'd ask a name and five minutes later it'd be a different name, right? They couldn't even remember what they told you. But everybody either had a warrant or a gun or drugs or I mean, it was a very rough, rough district I was working. So We call that a target-rich environment. Yeah. Don't you just love it when the idiots give you a fake name and that fake name just happens to have a warrant for it so they get arrested anyway? <laughs> I had that happen a couple of times. It's like, oh, the Lord is good. The Lord provides. Thank you very much. You know? Well, this was back in the good days, too. I got out of the academy. I got a 357 revolver and a wooden nightstick. And you know, if you had somebody you thought was lying to you, you had to take their fingerprints and then go down to the police headquarters and they had to go through a Rolodex to find the name and then compare the two fingerprints side by side because there was no APHIS or digital fingerprints. Or, oh, my gosh. Yeah, these are the old old school days. So it was... You know, Murph, on a homicide case, we had one time we needed a quick identification. We ended up taking prints, putting them on the photocopier and blowing them up and mm -hmm. then faxing them to an FBI guy in Kansas City guy that was a fingerprint expert so he could at least do a preliminary thing to say yep that's your guy or no that's not it but i remember having to do that just take the fingerprints put them on the copy remember you could uh you know blow them up and stuff it's like yeah we've come so far now you can take an iphone put a little reader on it now you got instant connectivity and you can find out what yeah. the guy's identity is in 10 seconds yep yeah, that's back when you had to, you had to come up with your own solutions. Sometimes you had to be creative. You're not you're not going outside the Constitution. You're not violating anybody's right, violating <laughs> anybody's rights. But you had to come up with ideas to make the job work. Yeah, we had to improvise, adapt, and overcome, as the the Marine Corps would say. And my son, formerly uh, a Marine, formerly on active duty. Well, let's let's talk about your time in Coral Springs because what. I know you said you got the divorce, uh, but why Florida? You said you had a home down there, or that was someplace you no, would go no, vacation? No, no, no. Obviously, I fell back in love and met somebody, and and had a baby on the way, so <laughs> I ended up going to Florida. You know, usually, you know, like typical men, we're always chasing the woman. So, yeah, I ended up in Florida. Got a job. Coming from Milwaukee, it was it was wow. I mean, I was in love. It was palm tree lined streets, and you know, it's like West Palm Beach, just an absolutely beautiful area. Everyone gets their own car. You put your antennas and CBs in it, and it was it was different compared to looking for a car that I could use every night that had been used 24 hours a day, and now I got my own private car. And But again, it wasn't a lot of action. It was a big change for me. I was, I was bored pretty quick. I was working nights, not a lot to do. And we had crime, but not not like inner city crime. You know, we'd have, you know, domestics, and, and every once in a while there'd be a shooting or a robbery or something, but not like, not like working in the inner city. So it, it was a big adjustment. I actually went back to college, went to florida atlantic university i didn't have my bachelor's degree yet because i left for the previous wife so i went back and finished that up and that's kind of what sparked my interest about maybe getting into the federal government now did you get it in criminal justice uh yeah actually they, they did me a really big solid down here they let me finish at florida atlantic but i got my degree from milwaukee so they actually transferred the credits back up and let me graduate from milwaukee so with, wow. with criminal justice and a minor in psychology yeah mm -hmm. that's what Why? i did uh, did you do it just because you wanted to graduate from Milwaukee or could you not have done that at FAU? 
No, I would you know, they don't transfer any credits the reverse way, so I'd have been probably starting half over. So I only had a few classes left to graduate from Milwaukee, so they were kind enough to do that. So Nice. I don't know if they would do that today. Yeah, right. I, I don't, you know, but I guess if you pay enough money, they'll do it. They don't care, you know, as long <laughs> as you pay them money, you know. Well, now you can get your degrees online. You don't have to go anywhere. I mean, you could you could be on the other side of the world and get your degree from wherever you want it from. Yeah, I've got a medical degree, you know. Um, I just I've, I offered to work on Murph. He wouldn't let me, but I said, look, I'm a doctor. Mm-hmm. You have a medical condition. It's the different. That's not a degree. It's a Come degree. On, it's a degree of a condition. I have a degree. <laughs> well, let, let's let's get back to you here. Uh, we digressed that. So in our drinking game, our first digression, uh, you are allowed to drink. So, but uh, Tim, you said you were getting bored. At what point during that four years did you say? Uh, I'm officially, I'm punching out. I mean, I got to find something else to do. Was it after the first year or did it take you a while? No, it probably took a couple of years. And you'll see, as you see my career, I don't think I've stayed anywhere longer than seven years. I was, you know, when when we start looking at DEA, I think I've been in nine or 10 places, but I just don't sit very, anywhere very long. But yeah, this wasn't, I mean, yeah. (laughs) After coming, I think from a real busy inner city to, you know, driving around businesses to see before the end of your shift that the business was broken into or, you know, domestic fights and, and false alarms. And you, know, you do you do that stuff long enough, it becomes very repetitive. And uh, I applied to the narcotics unit um, later on while I was there. I didn't get into that. I did spend two years on the SRT team, the SWAT team, but it was a part-time team. It wasn't full-time. And those are things I would have done if I stayed in Milwaukee. You know, you have an opportunity to get in a SWAT team or a Marine Harbor unit or different things. In a smaller city like Coral Springs, you don't really have those opportunities to move around a lot. So. So what, why narcotics? What, what, what sparked your interest about dope? Just something to do, or was there something that, uh, lit, you know, that lit a interest in you that said, Hey, I want to work dope. Actually, no, just something to do. Looked like a fun unit. They were a pretty crazy group and they were always out working hard and having fun. And yeah, just something, something different to do. I, and the same thing happened with DEA and I never even heard of DEA. I don't think before I got my bachelor's degree and we had a, we had a guy, really good friend of mine, Daryl Galloway. He uh, was a Sunrise cop, came to our department up in Coral Springs, and he'd been on the DEA task force, and I started talking with him about it. And, and again, I just did it. I mean, I applied to the FBI and DEA, I think, at the same time, and the processes were going pretty similar, and then DEA came along first. So, Thank goodness. Yeah. Yep. Thank had, goodness. Had FBI come <laughs> along first, would you have taken FBI? I probably would have just because whatever came along first, I would have jumped on. But yeah. So what year was it when you joined uh, the DEA? That was 1997. So you had been on by that time for what, 10 years, Murph? Were you 87? Yeah. And in 97, I was still in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'd already been in Miami and Columbia. So you get on DEA. And of course, we know infamously, you said you never got in trouble. But did you have to write a memo, Tim? To write a memo where? To who? <laughs> to get on DEA? No, well, at DEA, the academy, did you have to write a memo for some infraction I, or violation I, of rules? I or? actually don't think I did, and that's shocking because we violated probably every rule there was. But <laughs> I mean, probably halfway into the academy, I think we were out Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. <laughs> but this is back when you could get away with it because we were housed in the FBI buildings and dorms. We didn't have our own academy yet. It'd be harder these days, but yeah, we had, I had a good class. You got to realize you're bringing in guys in their thirties who are not coming from police departments in the military. So they're not a bunch of, uh, you know, little 21 year olds. And yeah, we had fun. Hmm. 
I, I probably wrote en enough memos for both you and I both, Tim. So you're covered. <laughs> he was just better at getting away with stuff than you were. Apparently. Right. Oh man, well, I, I got to tell you, Tim. My first time on the range, I, I when I came to DEA, I'd been a cop for uh, twelve years, and uh, had been on the railroad police shooting team. So we traveled all over the country, you know, in, in police shooting competitions. And so we, you know, in the academy, they start you on the five yard line. We had a six shot revolver back then, and they said, you know, slow fire, try to hit the piece of paper in front of you. And so I could shoot one hole. You know, and here comes one of the instructors. Oh, you think you're Mr. Smartass now? I want a memo. And I'm like, well, what's a memo? What are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean, what's a memo? You got to write me a memo while you're being a smartass on the range. And, and write a memo for, for a question of what a memo is. You know, just, I mean, you're busting your chops. You know how they are. So, and it kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> uh, that's, that's why you're so beloved, Murph. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's no, I'm not a smart ass. Well, maybe I am. I don't know. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. <laughs> so are you shooting shooting one hole from the 52? No, no. That was spread out a little bit. That was a little that's bit That's one different. thing about DEA. There's not many, many law enforcement agencies I've seen where they make you shoot a qualification course from 50 yards with a handgun. Well, but, uh, and, that, and the, you know, the competition I was shooting back then was the old police practical combat course, the PPC, which was a 50-yard course. So it was, you know, it wasn't that difficult at that time. <laughs> now I'm not sure I can see 50 yards. <laughs> now you just have to get one of those little firecrackers that uh, Tim had run into. Just light that thing and blow the target up, man. Target's or that, taken or, out. Or you get your 40 caliber pin when you go up to score your target. That's how it's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazingly, many of the folks in the military and the other folks I dealt with had 5.56 millimeter pins. Just happened to be the exact diameter of a round. Who knew? How about that? <laughs> Actually, one guy was so brazen about it, he actually soldered one of the 5.56 rounds on one of those little telescoping things. Oh. So he would telescope it out and he'd just pout, you know, poke it. It's like, you are so <laughs> Dude, come brazen. On. Come on, man. I don't want to be in a firefight with you. Just give me your ammo. So, uh, but as with everybody who gets out of the academy, you, you got to put in your wish list. So what was your wish list? Oh, God. What was it back then? I think it was Dallas, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C., and back then, they changed it a year or two into my career, but you couldn't put into where you came from, or I, would, I would definitely would have went back to Florida. But uh, So I got selected for Washington, D.C., so that was my first tour of duty in the uh, field division office. Why did you pick D.C.? Of all the places you could have gone, what was what was it about D.C. that said, I want to go to the nation's capital? Where there's no, no crime idea. and gangs, there are no gangs. It's it's a nice. It's If you thought this was sleepy, Coral Gables was bad. We can get to D.C. There's nothing going on. Yeah, I'm not sure the reasoning behind that, but <laughs> yeah. So what's, what, there was what, probably a woman involved somewhere, I'm guessing. Uh, I drug one along, but no, not this time. <laughs> yeah. What is this marriage number three now? Um, no, this was number two yet. Number two. No, this was oh. yeah, this was still number two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, still number two. As some a yeah. friend of mine who had been married a few times referred to his. He said, this is my wife. I refer to her as the future plaintiff number five. <laughs> there and I you said, go. what? He goes, yeah, this is the fifth one. I said, oh, good Lord. Or and some guys introduced, this is my current wife. <laughs> oh, there you <laughs> go. That's not a good thing to say. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, yeah, this is my current boyfriend. You know, well, you better figure that out. So uh, you got to D.C. So what kind of stuff were you doing in D.C.? You know, that, that's another ironic story. And I think everybody comes in different reasons and, and, and Murph could verify, you know, we get guys who are prior cops, they come in and they want to be cops. And, and DEA generally, I didn't see it as an agency where it's police work, right? I mean, you could do two months investigation and arrest one person. So 
you know, I, I had a field training, field training agent that wasn't a prior cop, came out of Detroit, and he wanted to go run around with 7th District in Anacostia every night, which is, again, the worst district of D.C., and we'd ride around with the lieutenant and in their car and do jump outs. And some of them weren't even related to drugs and just, you know, running around playing cop every night. And and then the drug stuff we were doing, it was street level stuff. So you'd be sitting out there in the middle of a Safeway parking lot and he'd be undercover in a, in a Lexus. And then, a, you know, Hoopty would pull up with three or four drug dealers in it. And it was, it was always dangerous stuff, right? And very dangerous. But uh, I think myself and, and other people coming from law enforcement, I was very disappointed in the fact that, you know, I thought I was going to be doing cartels and Colombians and Mexicans. And here I am out in the streets, basically chasing around street thugs, getting, you know, grams of crack and heroin every night when, you know, I never saw a kilo. I did three years in D.C. I never saw a kilo. I mean, by the time a kilo hits D.C., it's so cracked up and broken up that, you know. So it wasn't the types of cases I really came into DEA to work. So I was kind of disappointed and and wanted to do something different. Let me ask you, Tim, when throughout your career, I mean, you're dealing with pretty much the lowest level drug dealers that are out there in D.C. But then as you're going to tell us in a little bit how you got up to some of the biggest drug dealers in the world. Did you find it that there was more that much more of a propensity for violence with the smaller level drug dealers or the larger level? Oh, a hundred percent. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's tough. A hundred percent, the lower level in the U S yep. and, and, and some of these, and you'll see it. And then some of the people we dealt with on the high level, they're, they're actually very educated people, very business oriented people, but now the cartels obviously, and, and you can tell from the Pablo days and even now what's going on in Mexico, they can be very violent also. So the violent can be two extremes, right? I mean, you got the inner city doing drive-bys and shootings every night over drug territories, but then, you know, you've also got, you know, the Mexicans right now who decapitate people and hang bodies from bridges. And so it's, it's, it, it can be both extremes. That's for sure. That was, I mean, that's the thing, same thing I saw. We, we could arrest people that were bringing in hundreds, if not thousands of kilos of Coke and they would give up. But man, you go to that crack dealer on the, you know, it's trying to sell a rock on the, a $20 rock on the street corner. They'll fight you every time. They'll pull a knife on you. They'll pull a gun. They're, you're definitely going to run. You know, so I agree. It was always more violent on the lower end. Well, I think of Luis Navia. We had a we we had a guy. Uh, this guy was popped coming out of Venezuela with what was it, twenty five tons? I think so. On a ship of cocaine, and we talked to Luis, and he worked with all the cartels. And the one thing he never did, he said. He hated to carry a gun. He said he wasn't about violence. And to your, that's to your point, Steve. You look at these big folks. Mm-hmm. To them, it's business. Hey, we'll figure this out. We'll get out of this. But if, when you're at the low level and it's hand to mouth and you're you're fighting for scraps, it's like I think that's when, especially when people get desperate, they're willing to pull the trigger. Oh, yeah. Well, as I think with, with law enforcement, right, I, I felt a lot more in danger. And people always ask me, wow, DEA must have been so dangerous. Like, no, it was a lot more dangerous being a city cop or working drugs in the inner city. Because these big cartel members, the last thing they want is problems with the U.S. government, problems that are going to stop their drug flow or wreck their business. So, you know, uh, there was a story a while back in Colombia. I forget what agency it was, but an agent was actually kidnapped and taken out to the mountains. And he insisted he was an agent, insisted, and they actually sent sent some guys back to his hotel room. He gave them the key to his hotel room. And they went to the safe and they found his credentials. And they actually released the guy and gave him a ride back to the city. I mean, they didn't want any problems with the U.S. government at all. You know, what country what? was that in? I never heard of that. That was in Colombia. Yeah. How long yeah. ago? Oh God, this was a while. It had to be like 15 years ago, probably 20, 15, 16 years ago. I bet. 
Wow. Yeah. It was was it a DEA person or somebody? No, else? it wasn't DEA. I can't remember exactly if it was customs or what agency it was. I think it was near Cali, but they probably weren't supposed to be there to start with. Yeah, probably not. Probably on personal business, but <laughs> well, but you know, the other thing too. What lesson mm-hmm. did we learn from uh, like Kiki and some other stuff too? Right? I mean, it's like um, right. They they realized what happens when they when they wanted to get and. I was just talking to somebody too. They didn't realize we the, the piece of shit. We don't want to give him, but the one that got out of the Mexican prison was re- finally rearrested uh, for Kiki's death. People realize too, is that when the, you know, you do that and you get the attention, well, just what did they do? Murph, they just shut the border down, right? They just said, screw it, we'll shut the border down. The Mexicans tried to throw out a scapegoat to take responsibility for the murders. And our, our investigators down there knew that was bullshit, you know, and, and the president of the United States shut down the border. And it didn't take long at all before the the Mexicans came back to the table and the investigation opened up and continued. So, and, you know, and and we've talked about that before because people say, well, you know, you and Javier were in Colombia, you had a $300,000 price tag on your head. You're going after Pablo Escobar, blah, 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 all that stuff. You know, weren't you worried? Well, yeah, we were worried, but we felt pretty safe. Primarily, there are several different reasons, but one of those main reasons was because of the way the United States responded when Kiki Camarini was murdered. You know, you think about it, all these drug traffickers, they're not in it so much for the glory. They're in it for the money because in that, in their mind, that brings on the power and the ego and the greed and all the stuff that goes along with that. So now if you shut down the border, you're stopping their money flow. They don't want that, especially the big bosses, the, the Rodriguez or the brothers, even Escobar, yeah. he knew what was going to happen if he, you know, he put the big price tag on us, but, uh, they did, um, before I got to Columbia, they did have to move Javier in apartments a couple of times, but I think that was a jealous husband or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, it was, I'm being a jo- JP, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm making a joke. There was uh, the Sicarios found out where he lived in Bogota. So he got a call one day when he got home and his, you know, we all lived in apartments down there and, and uh, Bruce Stock was the boss. And he said, Javier, we said, are you at home? And he said, yeah. And he said, uh, grab your gun and get back to the embassy. And Javier's like, what? What do you mean grab my gun? And he's like, don't ask a lot of questions. We just got an intercept. The Sicarios are on the way to your place to get you. Get your ass back in the embassy. And he did. And so what did, the, you know, after this major threat, going to be killed by Sicarios from Medellin Cartel, what did DEA do? They just got him a new apartment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fool them. We'll just move him to another location. There we go. In Bogota, the same city. <laughs> yeah, in the same place. Well, uh, yeah. So, yeah, but anyway, we're talking about violence and stuff. So, I mean, that's kind of been part and parcel. The drug trade has always been violent in some areas. But like I, I think, like you say down there. But so, but you're in D.C. So what do you start looking at doing? Because we're going to get into the big story here in a little bit. We're going we're gonna to bring episode one to a close here in just a few minutes. And then episode two, we really want to get into it. But let's start laying the groundwork for how you got into this Queen of the Pacific case and some other stuff. So what was your trip out of D.C.? What did you do? What did you have to do to get to someplace fun and exciting like Milwaukee? So what we had at the time, we had something called a voluntary transfer program. And at the time, it was three years. So once you had three years out of the academy at your assigned office, if there was an opening in an office that you wanted to go to, and as long as you had both special agents in charge who run the DEA in both those offices agreed to it, that, that you could transfer. They would let you transfer between the two offices. You just had to pay your own move. So I applied I applied to do a transfer. The the uh, SAC, the special agent in charge of Miami, agreed to the transfer. The SAC in, in Washington agreed to the transfer. So I loaded up the U-Haul at my own expense and jumped on the road with the family and went back to Miami. So, Sweet. Now, yes. what, what group were you assigned to in Miami? 
I was and what in year, and what year was this also? So this was in November of 2000. I got assigned to Group 4, which was a very well-known group in Miami. A lot of the higher-ups higher in, in Mexico and Colombia and, and, and around the agency really came out of that group. It had a great reputation. Well, you know, we had a really uh, good group. We uh, before your interview comes on. In fact, uh, we're, so we're doing this at the end of October, and next week's guest is Dave Gaddis, who made it to He's the high school. There's a prime example. Yep. Yep. And uh, he was in Group Four in Miami. Yep. He told us a lot of stories. He's got a great book out, by the way. A oh, fantastic yeah. book. So you, yeah, a lot of big names came out of that group. So it, it was a great group. Really great group. Good people. What what made it a great group? So, I mean, group four, I mean, was it just simply because of, to your point, Murphy, target-rich environment? Was that because that was where the major players and the cartels were at? No, it, uh, well, it was, but I mean, that was true for all the groups in Miami at that time. You know, back when I was there in the late 80s, uh, Chris Feistel, you know, one of our best guests on the show here uh, with Cali Cartel, was in, assigned to group four group as a four. brand new age down the academy. You had uh, Coleman Ramsey came out of there. I think John Andreco was their boss is what Dave was telling us. I didn't know that at the time. Andreco being ended up being my special agent charge in Atlanta. He's the one that got my gave me my very first promotion from Greensboro to Atlanta as a group supervisor. It's just you had a, a bunch of guys in that group. They were supposed to be the clan lab group, but they were dedicated to the job. They had balls of brass. They weren't afraid to get out and work all night, kick ass and take names. And, and they were putting people in jail and they were doing God's work out there. It just, you know what, good people in that group. Yeah, groups seem to develop their own nature and work ethics and things. And I know we had a group below us. You know, they're mostly maritime. They developed that reputation. When I got into group four, I really had the reputation of being kind of a higher level conspiracy group because there wasn't an assigned conspiracy group then yet. But, you know, we're really working the the higher level cases. So well, that was, yeah, it was yeah, an excellent and- group to start in. Morgan's heard, heard us say this before, and our listeners as well, man. If you couldn't make a drug case in Miami back in those days, you were in the wrong job. <laughs> well, that's what shocked me. I came from D.C. where I never saw a key, and I think I'd been in Miami a week or two, and we're out getting fronted. I think it was two keys of heroin and six keys of Coke, and I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I was like, I yeah, you're crazy. Open. Take it back until we get the money. That's not the way this works. Yeah, this ain't how this works. What are you doing? Wow, that's hilarious. That's fantastic. But that's the way South Florida was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and it quieted down. It wasn't like, you know, the 80s and the 90s. I mean, the late 80s were already, we weren't seeing as much coke. I mean, and, and I don't think the administration in Miami wanted to admit it, but Miami really wasn't the coke capital anymore. It was becoming the Mexican border. And Miami was losing that persona. But you weren't seeing as much coke. We were seeing a lot more heroin. I did seven years in Miami on that transfer. And while I was in Miami, we were working so many heroin cases. We were just getting a lot of heroin coming through. So. You know what? The the four years I was in Miami from 87 to 91, we had one heroin case and it was just, I mean, it was a few ounces. And I think it was somebody who came from out of state to do that. You know, it just, it just wasn't a problem back then. Not in South Florida. Uh, yeah. Cause that, that's kitty stuff. I mean, you got to work the real big stuff, right? Murph? <laughs> well, if you talk to the guys from New York, they'll say cocaine's kitty dope. That's what the top <laughs> that's that's they call it. Kitty dope. Yeah. And speaking kitty of Chris Feistel too, here's a shameless plug for Patreon, him and Dave Mitchell. We're doing the real uh, mm-hmm. DEA narcos on the real DEA narcos Cali edition. Cause we did the original version with Murph and JP 12 episodes. Well, this one's 15 episodes, but 16 hours episode 12. I'm going to have to let you hear that one, Tim, you're going to change your view of, of Dave, I mean, of Chris Feistel, once you hear episode 12 and talk about taking one for the team, 
I mean, it, this it, it takes on a whole new meaning. Doesn't it, it takes on a whole new meaning. Oh, and as we as we record this, uh, we just dropped episode eight. Episode nine will be coming out. Uh, episode nine will be coming out November tenth. Uh, so for patreon.com slash game of crimes, there's shameless plug for that. So, hey, let's let's spend just the next couple minutes kind of laying the groundwork because episode two, we want to dive into the case itself. So just kind of give us a high level overview. How did this case come about? How did you get started into this thing? Uh, and when I watch the videos and stuff, we'll post those on there. I mean, it, it, it's a little weird, but I mean, but she is... Uh, She's at least she's not as ugly as uh, the Black Widow. Griselda <laughs> <laughs> Blanco. <laughs> uh, well, I think as, as we talk about this case, she's actually it's funny that so much so much attention is being paid to her because she really wasn't that high in this case. I mean, she was probably like middle level for, from the real indictments we got in this case. Like the broker, and we'll talk about some of these people, but you know, the supplier out of Cali or the broker out of Cali, the supplier out of the Norte Valle cartel. The Sinaloa cartel leader that got actually killed by El Chapo, and I mean, there's a lot of other people besides her. She was her involvement in this case actually wasn't really that high. She just got a lot of notoriety out of it, and you know, she, she, you'll see, she really likes her fame and attention. So, but, well, and but that's what it, she was on 60 Minutes. Uh, she was on a bio. She was on 60 Minutes. She's got a wiki page. She's got a music video. She's got her own book on Amazon. She's got, yeah, she really. She really uh, feels special. You talk about getting your 15 minutes of fame. Well, so this is going to be the queen of the Pacific. So we've laid all the groundwork now. So let's do this. Let's everybody hang tight. Don't you guys go anywhere. So what we're going to do is uh, you folks hang tight. Episode two will come out on Tuesday. So we dropped the first one on Monday. So uh, stay tight. But in the meantime, go visit us, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got a lot of information there. A lot of these videos will be posted there. Uh, go to at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes and hear about Chris Feistel taking one for the team when episode 12 comes out and a lot of our other good content. But everybody, stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We're going to come back with part two of the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, Queen of the Pacific, the Game of Crimes. <laughs>